a prop. This is actually my digital timer. Most of you probably think I don't pay attention to it. <laughs> Believe it or not, I try to I try to keep track with it. I actually write the amount of time I'm supposed to be at on the bottom of each page. And so I do my best, beloved. I do my best. But without it, we would be in even worse trouble. So I'm going to use it this morning. Okay, so we are concluding First John. We've been in this book since June 17th, I believe, of last year. And if you haven't heard, we're going to go to Romans, the book of Romans next. So looking forward to that. First John chapter 5, we're in the final verses, verses 18 through 21. By the way, if you've missed any of these sermons, they're all available online. They're also available on the table. That's our private social network for Summit Bible Church. So if you're, if you're a regular attender here, you're welcome to join the table. We encourage you to join the table. So you, if you want to find out more about that, you can check with the resource table. You can talk to me. I uh, titled this message, by the way, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. I titled this message, Three Certainties Concerning the True Christian. Three certainties concerning the true Christian. Maybe some of you are wondering, if you've been here, you know why I'm saying this, but for those of you who have not been here, or just by way of reminder, why do I say true Christian? Why do I keep using that true Christian as opposed to just saying Christian? Well, when I say true Christian, I'm specifically talking about a genuine, authentic, real, bona fide Christian. There are many counterfeit Christians. Many counterfeit Christians. Some know it and some don't. And by counterfeit, I mean they really aren't born of God. They take the title Christian, but they truly aren't Christian. And they call themselves Christian for a a host of reasons. Maybe they grew up in a Christian home, or maybe they have a Bible, or maybe they figure, I'm not an atheist, I believe in God, that must make me a Christian. Or I'm not a Catholic, so maybe I'm a Christian. Or I go to church, so I'm a Christian. That's not really what a Christian is all about. To be a Christian is a supernatural thing. And it begins when a person places their faith and trust, all of it, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. His sacrifice that has made them right with God and placed them in a position where they are now forgiven of all their sins, no longer under God's wrath or condemnation for their sins. And God actually credits the perfect life of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about Jesus Christ. He was sinless. He he lived the perfect life. He credits that perfect life to the sinner's account so that he can come before God and be reconciled with him. And then he puts his spirit inside of that person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, in God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's an authentic, genuine, real Christian. And I say that because as we've worked through the book of 1 John, that's what John's really getting after. You know, there are those who say they're Christian, and there are those who really are. And the ones who really are will have these things be true about their life, and the ones who aren't will have these things be true about their life. And that's how you can know the difference. So here we are again. We're going to see three certainties concerning the true Christian. These are things that are true, Absolutely true about those who truly have been born again, who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been reconciled and forgiven of all their sins. So let me read this passage. 
First John chapter five, verses 18 through 21, and then we'll look at the outline together. Page 1024 in those blue Bibles underneath the seats around you, in case you don't have a Bible. Look at the word of God with me. Verse 18, the apostle John writes, we know that everyone who has been born of God, that's the Christian, beloved. Everyone who has been born of God, without exception, okay, does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So this morning we're going to consider three truths concerning the Christian so that we might know what our, that's Christian, our relationship is to sin, the world, and God. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at three truths concerning the Christian so that we we might know what our relationship to sin, the world, and God really is. The first one is the Christian is no longer a friend of sin. He's no longer a friend of sin. The second is the Christian is no longer allied with the world. And finally, the Christian is united with the one true God. So let's look at the first point together. The Christian is no longer a friend of sin. Let's read the first part of verse 18 once again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So in these last few verses here, 18 through 20, we, what we see is really a summary of what John has already covered for us in this letter uh, more thoroughly in the other parts of it. Let me remind you of what the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3 and a few of the things that I said when we were looking at that particular verse in chapter 3, verse 9. Let me remind you, because this is really a summary now at the end of things that John has already said. First John 3, 9, John says... No one born of God, so no exceptions, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Every person who makes a practice of sinning, we talked about this at length, but I'm going to just review it with you whose life, by that I mean whose life is characterized by an unwillingness to break with their sin. An unwillingness to break with their sin. That is to say, a persistent pattern of defiance against God and no signs of repentance. Okay? So when you hear that defiance, don't think, don't just think, oh, that's the guy who robs liquor stores every day. No, it it certainly includes that guy. But it also includes the good moral person who refuses to submit their life to Jesus Christ. Who refuses to accept the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. Who refuses to bow their knee before the Lord and call Him Lord. It includes that person. That's a continual defiance. So, beloved, the Mormons are in continual defiance before God. Why? Because they reject 
his testimony concerning his son. They reject the true God. They reject the true Jesus Christ. And yet, these are some of the most moral people I have ever met. Kind. Many of them kind and nice. Good neighbors. In defiance. In defiance against God. Do you understand that? So you could be coming to church, beloved. You could be attending here. And you could still be in defiance against God. Still rejecting Jesus Christ. Still not coming under his rule or authority. And not willing to repent. So that person, that person who lives continually in defiance, unwilling to repent, no signs of repentance in their life, cannot at the same time, according to the word of God, truthfully claim to be born of God. That's what John is saying. It's so clear. So clear. There's not ten ways to interpret this, beloved. I love that argument. When people don't like what the word of God says, they go, oh, that's how you interpret it. Beloved, this is clear. A six-year-old could understand this. People just don't want to understand it. And why is that true? Because the one born of God, according to John, cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides or dwells, or remains, how the NIV translates it, remains in all those who are born of God. Now, we talked about this, but let me remind you, this seed has commonly been understood as the new spiritual life that is given to everyone who has been born of God, this spiritual life being given to them by the Holy Spirit. You can look that up. There's a reference to it in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. That's the Gospel of John. He also wrote that. As a result of this new spiritual life, beloved, or new birth, as we often refer to it, the genuine Christian is truly a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. They are a new creation. A supernatural transaction has taken place. And therefore, they cannot continue to be what they once were, a friend of sin. A friend of sin. They can't. Tolerating sin in their life and treating it like it's no big deal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now that doesn't mean, and I always, I always feel like I have to say this, John, John recognizes this. He talks about a Christians confessing their sin. It certainly doesn't mean that Christians won't sin. Okay? They do still sin. But here's what it means. It means that sin will no longer be because they are new creations, because they have been born of God, because God abides in them, they have this new spiritual life. Because of all that, sin will no longer be welcomed into their life as a good friend. But they will begin to resist and fight and flee from it. Because they will start to see it for what it really is. Which is rebellion, beloved. Rebellion against their God. Which they can no longer, which can no longer have any place in their life as beloved children of God. That's what happens. That's that transformation that starts to take place. They see sin not as a cool thing. 
Not as a fun thing. Not as a thing to delight in. Not as a thing to welcome. But as the very thing that says to God, I hate you. How does the child of God do that and be cool with that? Huh? Continually, without repentance. He can't. He can't. Oh, beloved, Christian sin. And they sometimes get caught up in this. And they believe the lie, like Chris was talking about, that sin's actually a better way. But if they are a child of God, the Spirit of God will not put up with that. The Spirit of God that dwells inside of them, and they will not be able to tolerate it either. And eventually, they will repent, they will turn, they will run, they will flee from this enemy called sin. One writer says this. Let me remind you of some of the quotes that I gave you before. The new birth involves a radical change in human nature. You bet it does. It's supernatural, beloved. We got a a bunch of, I'm just telling you, we got a bunch of non-supernatural Christians walking around because nothing supernatural has happened. Okay? They have not been born again. So they're really not genuine Christians. So he says, the new birth involves a radical change in human nature. For those who have not experienced it, sin is natural. It is natural for the sinner who has not been born of God, who has not been regenerated, who does not have the Spirit of God abiding inside of them. It's natural, just as natural as as water is to a fish. It's natural. It's their environment. They live in it. They breathe it. They welcome it. Whereas for those who have experienced it, the new birth, that is, sin is unnatural. Okay? Sin now becomes doggy doo-doo in the middle of your living room. Is that natural for any of you? Huh? It is very unnatural. Okay? It is unnatural. You walk into the house and there's doggy doo-doo in the middle of the living room. You know that's not right. You know it shouldn't be there. But for the sinner... He's comfortable with doggy doo-doo in the middle of his living room. I mean, not really. You get what I'm saying, right? Do you understand? When you start to see it that way, wow! That's nasty! Yeah, that's what sin is, beloved. It's nasty. No matter how the world packages it or Las Vegas sells it, it's nasty. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's unnatural to the person who is born of God. And he goes on to say, it is so unnatural indeed that it's practice. Those who engage in it willfully and continually with no repentance, its practice amounts to a powerful denial of any claim to possess the divine life. You understand what he's saying? You're denying by your actions, by your life, what you're saying with your mouth. I'm a Christian. Then why are you comfortable with the doggy doo-doo? Why are you so cool with that? Sleeping right next to it? Are you kidding me? I mean, sometimes we don't know it's doggy doo-doo. But the Christian, once he knows, once he sees, he goes, wow, you're right. Get that out of here. One writer says this, whatever is born of God must share God's character, beloved, and his opposition to sin. Huh? You're a child of God. That's what you are if you say you're a Christian. You're born of God. 
Do you think God is okay with sin? Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. You cannot walk away from reading the Word of God and think that He is remotely okay with sin. He is opposed to sin. He loathes it. He despises it. He hates it. It disgusts Him. It should disgust us too. And one writer says, The urge not to sin implanted by the new birth reflects the new nature and purpose of God to eliminate sin. That's what God wants to do. If sin is as bad as the word of God says it is, and it is, then it makes perfect sense for a good God to want to eliminate this nastiness in your life, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But the problem is we buy into the lie that sin tells us that sin's not that bad. We buy into it. But as Christians, we will not continue in that pattern of life. We will not. That's what the word of God is saying. So then he says in 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. I want to point something out to you here, just looking back at this passage. The original Greek verb, okay, translated here, has been born in the English version. It's a Greek verb, one word, has been born. It's in the present tense in the Greek. Let me tell you what that means. They have these different tenses in Greek and it, it provides another, it helps us understand the word better. We sometimes miss it in the English because it can't capture all of that. It simply means this, that being born of God is an event that was completed in the past. Okay, when you came to faith in Christ, when you made a commitment to Christ, it's an event that is completed in the past, but it also has present results. The event has present results. It didn't stay in the past. So in other words, being born of God is, as I said, not just a past event, but for the Christian that has no ongoing effect for them or present results, but rather it is an event that continually produces real change in the Christian's life. One change being, there's many, but one change being an indifferent, entirely different relationship with sin. An entirely different relationship with sin. This thing that took place in the past has ongoing effects. One of those effects, one of those results in the present is a different relationship with sin. As a result, being born of God, the Christian can no longer just welcome and embrace their sin. They can't. They can't. Does it mean they won't sin? No, they will. But they will have a different relationship with this enemy. They will have a different relationship. They see and will see more clearly as they grow and mature in their faith that sin is not their friend. Sin is not their friend, but their enemy. And therefore, it can no longer be a normal and regular part of the Christian's life. You understand? So this is not someone beating down on you saying, sin cannot be a part of your life. And so eventually you, you get tired of them screaming at you and you try to stop sinning. That's not what I'm talking about. There's something supernatural going on inside of the Christian. It's supernatural. It's Holy Spirit working. You're born of God. And because of that, you can no longer be cool with sin. You just won't be able to. And so that's why Christians get so frustrated when they get into sin. 
they get so frustrated because you aren't meant to sin anymore. God doesn't want you sinning anymore. You'll never be satisfied if you continue to sin, ever. And so then you try new sin and more sin. I know somewhere along this line I'll find satisfaction. Oh, no, you won't. You won't, especially as a Christian. So, what this results in, this new life, this being born again is a life of repentance, okay? A life of repentance when we do sin. You know what that is? Putting off the old self, putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a passage from Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. So, for example, let me make this real. Instead of lying, instead of being cool with lying, do you know our society is so cool with lying? It's no big thing, man. You get into a little trouble, you just lie. The boss asks you a question, you lie. Your husband or wife asks you a question, you lie. The police officer asks you a question, you lie. And you're okay with it. Just lie after lie after lie. The Christian, though, instead of lying, sees it for what it is. Vile, dog doo-doo. They serve and worship a God of truth who cannot lie. Therefore, they repent of their lying. They turn from it. They confess it when they've done it. They see it as wrong. And they begin to speak the truth. The truth to the police officer, the truth to their spouse, the truth to their employer. Huh? No amens? I'm trying to get all I can out of this book before we leave it. We lie in all kinds of ways. We lie in all kinds of ways people in general but the christian says lying is is wrong it's not just wrong beloved it's sin it's sin and they begin to speak the truth to one another by the way they stop stealing rather than stealing they labor so that they might actually have something to share with those in need and so immediately what do we think when we hear stealing hey listen i I don't hold up liquor stores that's good, okay? Um, kudos for that. But stealing happens in all kinds of ways. We steal from the government. Oh. Oh, yeah, but you don't understand, Jeremy. You know, the government's unrighteous and so on and so forth. Okay, go to Romans 13. See if that argument holds up for a while. Go read the scripture. See what the word of God says. Let your mind be transformed by God. We steal when we lie on our time cards. We've got a couple different things going there. Lying and stealing. All right. Two piles of dog doo-doo. So, beloved, the Christian goes, man, I am stealing. I am stealing. And this is wrong. Repents, confesses it before God, finds forgiveness with God because of Jesus Christ, and now says, I will no longer steal, but I will labor all the more. I will work, not so that I can steal, so that I'll have something 
to share with others those who are in need, those who are downtrodden. What a different approach. How about this? Instead of having bitterness, wrath, and anger toward one another, the Christian now chooses to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving toward one another. Huh? I could spend you know, the rest of the sermon just talking about this. By the way, everything I just talked to you about is in Ephesians 4, 25-32. I'm not making those examples up. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us those specific examples. That's the word of God. Let it have its way with you. The Christian life is a life still interrupted by sin, beloved. It is, but it is not a life dominated by sin, not primarily characterized by sin. That is, if it is a genuine Christian life. That is, if it's genuine. One writer says, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet They cannot live together in harmony. They cannot live together in harmony. Listen, I would add sin and the Christian may occasionally meet and you may invite sin over for a time because we're dumb like that. We're messed up like that. But eventually, you'll find that relationship is just not working out. And you will reject sin. You will kick sin out. Listen, if it can be said of you that sin and you are BFFs, you know what that means? (laughs) Best friends forever. If that can be said of you, if you look into your life and you can say, yeah, me and sin, we're like this, man. You know what I'm saying? Then you have not been born of God. And I'm not saying that the word of God is saying that. What you need then is to truly be born of God because until that happens, you will never have the power to conquer sin in your life and sin has never been broken in your life and you are not a new creation. You can go around all day long screaming, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. God makes you a Christian. When He invades your life, when you say, God, save me through Jesus Christ, He invades your life and you become a Christian and God starts to work. And as you cooperate with his power, you will see sin overcome in your life. Will you be perfect in this life? No, we've said it a million times. No, no, no. In the next, yes, yes, yes. But beloved, sin will not dominate your life. It cannot any longer. It will not be the main emphasis or point of your life. Anyway, let's go back to the verse. Verse 18, way behind. Wow. This is really neat. 1 John 5.18 We know that everyone who has been born of God you're going to like this does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I love this. In the second part of this verse the he who was born of God the he there in some translations they capitalize the word he in this one they don't but most Bible scholars will look at that they believe that that is John making a reference to Jesus Christ, the he that is born of God or was born of God. Jesus Christ being the one and only eternal and divine son of God, the only begotten of God. Jesus then, and I believe that's the case here, as the unique son of God, I believe that's who John is referring to, is the one who protects Every person who has been born of God 
who has been born of God. That is, who is that? True Christians. And prevents the evil one from touching them. Now, this is so neat, okay? What is that all about? Well, let's make sure we're all speaking the same language here. Evil one. Who's that? Well, we've looked at it before. John's already referred to this evil one in chapter 2, verse 13, in verse 14, and in chapter 3, verse 12 of this letter. It is clearly, without a doubt, a reference to Satan. Yes, he's real. He's real. Or sometimes we refer to him as the devil. He's a real being. The evil one. And the verse here says the evil one does not touch him. Who's him? The Christian. Now touch, beloved, is a... You know, maybe you're thinking like that. So is that what Jesus is all about? He's like, nope. You know, is he just protecting us from a touch from the, the evil one? No. The Greek word touch is kind of under-translated. It's hard to capture this, but the Greek word that's translated touch in the ESV, as we've looked at, it can mean to fasten oneself to, to cling to, to lay hold of. To lay hold of. So according to John, what Jesus does is protect Christians by keeping the devil from clinging to them or laying hold of them. Now, it's important to remember that the context of this statement. In other words, what's going on? What's he been talking about right here in these verses when he talks about protecting the Christian from the evil one touching them? He's talking about sinning. That's the context. This is why it's so dangerous when people rip passages out of their context because then I can make them mean whatever I want, right? So I can say, oh yeah, Jesus keeps the evil one from touching you, so you'll never have any problems in your life. That, that's not the context here. That's not what the promise is. It's in the context of sinning. So what John is saying is that Jesus keeps Satan from recapturing the Christian, who he once had, or laying hold of him and leading him back into a life of continual sin. A life completely lacking of repentance and dominated by sin. Do you understand that? A life completely lacking of repentance and dominated by sin. Jesus protects the evil one from doing that for the Christian. That's why John can say, for whoever has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's why he can say that with such confidence. Because Jesus is at work. One writer says this, the devil does not touch the Christian because the Son of God protects or keeps him, as one translation says. Keeps him. So because the Son protects him, the Christian does not persist in sin. Now that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't keep trying to lay hold of or fasten himself to the Christian in order to enslave him once again to sin and make sin a normal and acceptable part of their life. It doesn't mean that Satan doesn't stop trying. He's an idiot too. And an idiot, I mean, he has given himself over to sin. So he is a foolish one. So he continues, but because of the watchful eye and protection of the Lord, he will never succeed. That is what he's saying. He will never succeed. 
One writer says, Satan will assail the believer, attack the believer, but his slimy fingers will never regain an abiding grip on the redeemed soul. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Another writer says, Satan desires to lead us into sin and to control us permanently. But we who are children of God belong not to Satan, but to God. You know, I just think of it this way. You know, when you're in the nursery and stuff, you see the kids, right? They who haven't learned sharing yet. And they have a toy and another one comes over and tries to take the toy and There's a battle that pursues. Usually the strongest one wins or the loudest one or whatever. Mine, right? Mine. Well, that's not good behavior. But in this case, this is the holiest behavior because when Satan comes along and tries to take that one that used to be his, Jesus says, mine. Mine. You cannot have him. See that? Who's stronger than Jesus? No one. Beloved, if it were not for Jesus Christ, this is the more we learn, the more we study, the more we admire and praise this one. If it were not for him, we would have no hope. He is our Savior and our protector, our perfect Redeemer and the everlasting Keeper of our soul. This one, Jesus Christ. Can you start to realize those things? That's why our praise on Sunday mornings or on Monday or on Tuesday or on Wednesday, but especially when we come together on Sunday, should blow the roof off the ceiling. It should if you understand this stuff. This is the one to whom we sing. Not only our Redeemer, but our Protector, our Keeper, our Mighty One. If it were not for Him, Satan would have his way with us. And lead us right back into a life of sin. So the true Christian is no longer a friend of sin. The Second, the Christian is no longer allied with the world. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Alright, let's look at this quickly. John says we here, which includes himself and his Christian readers. And they know or are certain that we are from God. That's the we, John and his Christian readers. So that we are from God or... As one translation says it, that we are of God. Okay? So that we are from God, that we are of God, or as another translation says it, that we are children of God. Or to put it another way, we belong to God. We belong to God. And in contrast to the Christian, John and his Christian readers, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or as the NIV translates it, listen, The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Who's that? We just talked about it. The devil or Satan. That's what John says. That's what the word of God says. The whole world in this context would include everyone who belongs to this fallen and corrupt world. Those who are not of God. 
John's making a contrast. Those who belong to God and those who don't. Those who have not become children of God. Who do not truly belong to God. Why? Because they have not been born of God. They have not been born of God. No supernatural event like that has occurred in their life. You know, Jesus says this. He uses this phraseology in John 17, 16. He's praying for his disciples and he says this. They are not of the world. Just as I am. Just as I am not of the world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. What is he talking about? They're, they're in the world, right? What does he mean they're not of the world? They're not from Mars. They're not from Venus. What he means is they don't belong to the world. They don't belong to this evil system. They're no longer under the control of the evil one. Just as I am not of this world. That's what he's talking about. So looking again at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is good. That meaning of that Greek word translated lies. It includes this. Listen to me. It includes the idea of reclining or resting. That's what I want you to think. When you see lies, not tell lies, but like lie down. Like easy, lazy boy. You know what I'm saying? Like Susie's awesome new couch. Awesome new. I've never seen a couch like this. You push a button and it electronically goes up. I've never seen anything like that. Why do you have lights on the side of your couch, Susie? I'll push it. Okay, reclining. Unbelievable. Never seen anything like that. And all the way back to the point where you're, in, you know, you're this way. You know, blood's running back towards your head. Reclining, lying, resting. That's what the word means. So you could say that the world is resting in the arms of Satan. The evil one. The idea here is there is no resistance to his control or evil power. That's the picture. There's no resistance. They're relaxed. You get it? You get that? One writer says this, the picture is one of contentment in the arms of the evil one. The truth about the world is that it is content to be under the control and influence of the devil. One writer says this, it's actually John MacArthur. I found this just very... He says the world lies in the lap of the evil one like a baby cradled asleep in the arms of Satan. Is that a good picture? And then one writer adds this regarding Satan's control of the world. He says he controls it with tyrannical authority. Tyrannical authority organizing and orchestrating its life and activities to express what? His own rebellion and hatred against God. Beloved, people, you know, who don't know any better or who have not studied the scriptures or don't know reality as it really is, since God is the author of reality and he tells us how things are, really are, since he's the creator and designer and sovereign and all wise one, they go, why is the world so messed up? I know. It lies under the control of the evil one. So you want to know why we have so many different religions? People use this argument to attack God. It, it's, it's crazy to me. You know, why, if God is really God, why is there so many different religions? That doesn't prove that God isn't really God. It proves that what God has already said, that the evil one is tyrannically ruling and expressing his rebellion. 
in a many different ways. One of them being a many million different ways that lead you away from God. He says, oh yeah, here's the true way. Let me make 5,000 different ways that lead you away from the true God. Because I hate him. And I don't want anybody to go the right way. Right? The scriptures tell us that narrow is the way that leads to life. Few are who find it. But broad is the way that leads to death. And many go that way. And Satan is busy giving them more opportunities every year. God's not the author of confusion. Satan is. How about materialism? You want to know why materialism exists? You want to know why it exists? Love of possessions, love of this life. Satan! I don't want you to worship God, the giver of life. I want you to worship stuff. (laughs) He thinks it's hilarious. Look at you fools. And you will just commit yourself to more stuff. Because it will never satisfy you. Only God can do that. I know that. So I will send you this way, materialism. How about pornography? Where do you think that comes from? You want to know why pornography floods the internet? Floods homes. It floods homes. Even It's even in Christian homes, usually hidden. Maybe not as open, you know? I go I drive by my neighbor's house, okay? In his garage, he's got all the girly stuff right there. Garage doors open, half-naked pictures of women. So kids walking by, anybody else walking by can see it, right? I'm guessing he's not a Christian. I'm guessing. But Christians, they get caught up in this stuff too. It's everywhere, but they don't usually post it in their garage, okay? They usually hide it under their bed or on their hard drive. Murder, abortion, sexual perversion of every kind. You want to know why what's going on in the world with this whole homosexual agenda and all of this stuff and it's being pushed harder and harder and harder and even our president is endorsing it? The one who says he's a Christian? Do you want to know why? Because this world is under the control of the evil one. So you watch, beloved. Degrading, just downward, downward spiral morally. How about corruption on every level? Deceit. How about violence? Here's one. How about racism? It still exists. It still exists. It hasn't gone anywhere. You know why? Because the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. He loves this one. God created man and women. They are made, every single one of them, in the image of God. Now, they are born sinners, that is true, and they rebel against their Creator, but they are made in His image, every single race, every single color. Oh, so Satan says, look at this. I will have one of these rise up against the other one and think they're superior and think the other one is inferior. Even though they all have value because they are all made in the image of God, I will reject that. And I will get the people to reject that. Racism. And I'll have them kill each other over this. Enslave one another. Torture each other. Because I hate God. 
Anyway. I don't know where all this came from. But back to the point that I believe can be drawn from this verse. I said the Christian is no longer allied with the world. Don't miss that. To be allied can simply mean joined with others in alliance. An alliance meaning a close relationship based on similar objectives or characteristics. Okay? So because the world lies in the power of or under the control of the evil one, they who belong to the world, those who have not been born of God, are actually in alliance with one another, carrying out the objectives of Satan. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I just said. I don't care if they're Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. I don't care if they're religious. Those who are not born of God are in alliance with one another, carrying out the objectives of Satan, fulfilling his diabolical desires, which includes various expressions of his rebellion and hatred for God. So it shows up in all kinds of ways. False religion, racism, pornography, murder, abortion. It shows up in all kinds of ways. But John is saying we as Christians belong to God and not to this world. We are no longer allied with those, whether they know it or not, who are living in and expressing their rebellion to God. We are no longer allied with them. And one writer says this, John wastes no words and blurs no issues. The uncompromising alternative is stated bluntly. Clearly, this is it. Everyone belongs either to us, John and his Christian readers, or to the world. Everyone is therefore either of God or under the control of the evil one. Yeah. That's it. That's what the word of God says. You know, you don't have to accept it, but I don't really care. Because that's the truth. That's the truth. That's why this world is how it is. If you are a Christian, beloved, then you belong to God and not this world. You get that? That's the truth. You belong to God. You are His. You are no longer the world's. You are no longer allied with them. Therefore, your life should demonstrate that reality. My life should demonstrate that reality. The reality that my allegiance is with God and not with this fallen and sinful world that is ruled by the evil one who only wishes to express his rebellion and hatred for God. Huh? So let me remind you of what John said. This will all start to maybe make sense to you. First John chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, Do not love the world. He's speaking to his Christian brothers and sisters. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, the same world that is under the control of the evil one. And the world, praise God, is passing away. It's not permanent, along with all of its wicked desires. But whoever does the will of God, he abides forever. Huh? He abides forever. One writer says this, As those loyal to God, John's readers are to be on guard against a permissive or kindly feeling towards the world's evil and are not to establish intimate relationships of loyalty with it. Why? They belong to God. 
They are no longer allied with this world. All right, finally, last point. It's quick, maybe. The Christian is united with the one true God. Point three. The Christian is united with the one true God. Look back at the text with me. First John chapter 5, verse 20. John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We'll go quickly through this. These final verses really capture the heart of one of John's purposes in writing this letter. Remember this. The Apostle John was fighting false teaching concerning Jesus and how exactly one is saved or enters into a saving relationship with God. He even references, I'm writing to you about those who are trying to deceive you in chapter 2, verse 26. And so he wanted to make sure that his Christian readers would not be led astray by these deceivers or antichrist, as John refers to them. Antichrist. They're, they say they know Christ, blah, blah, blah. They're against Christ. They reject the true Christ. And he didn't want his Christian readers to start to doubt if they really had a relationship with the one true God. We've said that before. So John here expresses confidently, he says, listen, we know, we know that the Son of God has come and that the Son of God is Jesus Christ. These people are out of their minds. We know he's come, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've beheld him. That's how he opens up the letter in 1 John. We have seen him. We have been with him. And we know this one is Jesus the Christ, the divine Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. It's him. There is no denying that. And he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So the hymn there is obviously a reference to God, the father. So listen, the son of God has come, who has come, has given us understanding. That's what he's saying, understanding or the capacity to understand the capacity to understand. That is the mental ability to, to discern the true significance of this one who came, who he truly is, and why he even came to this earth. Why? Why must we be able to understand that? So that we would know him who is true, that is, the God who is real or genuine. That's what he means by true, real or genuine, the real thing, authentic. We might know him who is true, not a counterfeit or a God of people's imagination or of their mind, a made-up God, but rather the God who is actually God. And John says this. He says, and we are in Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. John is certain that they, who's they? His Christian readers, those who have been born of God, have been united with the one true God. They are in Him who is true. You understand that? They are in the one who is God. That's what they need to know. That's what they can be certain of. And then look back at the text. 1 John 5, 20. It says this. First, it says, and we are in him who is true. And then it just says, in his son, Jesus Christ. 
Why does John add this additional phrase, in his son Jesus Christ? We are in him who is true. That's God, the the Father in the context, in his son Jesus Christ. Well, I think it's best to understand this as an explanation to how it is possible that we have been united with him who is true, that is God, the Father. It is possible and only possible because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. I think that's exactly what's going on. One translation actually puts it this way. And we are in union with the true God, the same passage here, 1 John 5.20, translates it this way. We are in union with the true God by our union with his Son, Jesus Christ. Another puts it this way. We are in the true God as we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. I found this comment helpful. Just uh, I'll read it and you can listen to it. One writer says this in regard to this whole section right here. Only in this way are we in God. Only in this way. Apart from the Son, no one is in God. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through through me. He who denies the Son has not the Father. That's what it says in 1 John 2, 23. You deny the Son, you don't have the Father. This is the burden of the entire epistle. This is the... This is what John's getting at. This meaning cannot be eliminated at the climax, at the, at the end of this, this letter, this beautiful letter. We are in the real one in Christ. No man is in God without Christ. I mean, that's John's emphasis. These false teachers, these deceivers, these antichrists are, are lying to you about Jesus Christ. They have rejected the truth about Him, rejected the testimony of God about His Son. Therefore, they are not in Christ. They do not have Christ. And if they do not have Christ, they do not have the Father. They do not have God. They are not born again. That's evident because they continue to sin. They hate the brethren. They don't love one another. These are all the things that we see in 1 John. So one writer kind of summarizes this all and he says, we know him who is true only because the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We are in him who is true only because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. Wrap up here. 1 John 5.20. There's just a statement here at the very end of the verse. He says, he is the true God and eternal life. Who is the pronoun he referring to in this passage? Who is he referring to? There's some discussion about this, but I think the most logical explanation is the subject or name that's mentioned right before the pronoun he. That is Jesus Christ. Look back at the text with me. 1 John 5.20 at the end. It says, And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. And we're starting to to step into the Trinitarian nature of God. God, one God existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Just earlier in this passage in 1 John 5, the Father has given eternal life to him and life is in The Son, in the Son. One writer says this, 
The one who is perfectly revealed only in Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. To have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to be in a relationship with the true God and have eternal life. Genuine Christianity is worshiping the true God in and through Jesus Christ, His Son, who is the true God and eternal life. This sentence may well be the climax of the entire epistle, the entire letter, the highest point. Beloved, that's, we don't worship a man. We don't worship a good teacher. We worship God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Master and King. Without Him, we would not have any access to the Father. We would not have any access to God. John concludes with this warning. Verse 21, he just simply says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And an idol, I I was going to maybe do a separate passage on this or sermon, but I decided it really is just kind of a closing statement in regard to the context. So it's really just a, let me explain. An idol is basically a, a false god, a false god, you can understand it that way, or a representation of, of such, such a one, a false god, that is worshipped. Yeah, I mean, just basic kind of stuff here, idol. Idolatry then is basically worshipping that which is not God, that which is not the true God, that which is not the authentic God. Okay? I am convinced based on the context of this letter, everything we've been looking at in John's preceding reference to the true God, That's what we see in verse 20. He just said, this is the true God. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Based on all that and everything that that John has been working through in the letter, John is saying, listen, do not pay any attention to the deceivers or antichrist who are presenting you with a false image of God, an idol, if you will, a misrepresentation of the true God. The Antichrist had a a false view. We've talked about it at length over the months. They had a false view of Jesus Christ and therefore they had a distorted view of God. The God they worshipped was not the true God. It was a God of their own imagination. It was a God of their own philosophy. It was a God that was not the God who had revealed himself through his word and through his son Jesus Christ. In the end their God was nothing more than an idol. Just like the many false gods or idols that pervaded the land in which these people lived. There were all kinds of false gods that were worshipped. And I think John is just saying, don't get caught up in just another false god. The one that's being presented to you by these antichrists, by these deceivers. Keep yourself from them. If you are a Christian, there's no reason, beloved, to entertain or even consider the many false gods that this world worships. Why? Because you, if you are a child of God, have already been united with the one true God. You don't need to look any further. You're you're united with Him. Worship Him and Him alone. But if you are not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, okay? If you are not an authentic Christian, not just one that says they're a Christian, but if you are not an authentic Christian, then you are not united with the one true God. You are not You are not. You are actually still allied with this corrupt world that is passing away and sin remains your very good friend. 
I cannot think of a worse place for a person to be, a worse position for a person to be in. Let me just say this. If you're not sure that you're a child of God, you're not sure you're a Christian, we want to talk to you about that. We want to tell you that the Word of God tells you how you can become a true, bona fide, authentic Christian. How you can become a child of God, be allied with the one true God. How you can belong to God. How sin and its power in your life can be broken because of your relationship with this God. We would love to talk to you. You can put on your connection card. There's a thing you can mark on there. Listen, I'm interested in starting a relationship with Jesus Christ. We see that and we will respond to that. That's one way. You can come up and talk to me. That's another way. You can talk to someone you know within this congregation that you believe to be a true Christian. You can talk to them too because they'll be able to tell you how. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book, this letter. It's been a blessing to me personally and a trust uh, to your people as well. Father, I pray that we would not just set it aside and never look at it again, but Father, we would continue to come back to it again and again and read this inspired word, your word to us, written through your apostle John. Father, may these things just continue to work in our hearts and our minds and and have an impact on us, change us, transform us, Father. That's what we want, I trust, I hope. That we want to be changed. We want to be transformed. We don't want to remain the same people today or, to, or a year from now that we are today, Father. We want to be conformed. If we're truly your children, we want to be conformed and, and transformed little by little into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us as we listen to your word, hear your word, meditate upon your word, and then, and then ha- let it have its way with us. Obey it and submit to it. Father, for those here who do not, do not really have a relationship with you, but maybe claim to, or, or maybe they don't know, Father, would you work in those circumstances to bring them to a place where they would connect with another Christian that they might be able to show them the way. And they might be able to tell them from the Word of God how they too can be born of God. Putting them in the best possible position that they can be in as a human being. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.